Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 29, and continuing all the way through chapter 24. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave, and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today, into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked come wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the king of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, 
But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Vivian. You can be seated. Well, again, good morning on the sleepiest Sunday of the year, right? Glad that you are here with us. If you're new, I want to especially welcome you. This is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through uh, First and Second Samuel. And uh, I hope uh, why I had us sing Our God Reigns um, makes a little bit more sense after Vivian reading uh, the text this morning. Opportunities. Opportunities can be deceiving, can they not? And uh, even the, the songs that we sang about the Lord being our vision, or asking God, give, give me your vision, um, is so important when we come to a text like this. Because often, uh, oftentimes our eyes, our sight is limited. Our vision sees dimly lit, as Paul says, at best. But the Lord's vision, the Lord's sight is always perfect. And so I want us to sink our teeth uh, deeply into uh, this text. I want us to sink our hearts deeply into this text. And, and again, it being, I kind of joke about it being the sleepiest Sunday. Um, I don't think that's by coincidence, right? Um, that we'd approach such a, a powerful text on a day where we're all just struggling with an, <laughs> an hour less of sleep, right? And so praying that the Spirit just illuminates our minds to be sharp as we approach uh, this text. And so let's, let's start where we began last week. And that's with David entering into what's known as the wilderness years. Into the wilderness, running for his life from Saul. And put up this map of, of, of David's journey from Saul, who is trying to kill him. And today we are going to be in, we're, we're only going to be in one place, number 11, there in Engedi. And Engedi is an interesting place because the wilderness where David is running is marked by territory that looks like this. You can give me the wilderness uh, picture. It's not a flat, like we oftentimes think of desert or, or, or wilderness, and it's just kind of this flat place. Uh, this was very mountainous. There was a lot of terrain. A lot of detriment would have been there, and, and, and David just fleeing and running around all over the wilderness. But there, were these, there was this place known as Engedi, and Engedi was, was this oasis. Engedi means the uh, springs of goats. And Engedi was this oasis of fresh water and lush vegetation. And you can give up the it would have been something like this is probably not the specific scene that David would have been in, but this is what Engedi is marked by, flowing water and just this beauty. And there was this cave there that David and his 300 men or so found themselves hiding in, retreating in, in Engedi. And Saul, as you recall last week, had just went out against the Philistines with his army and then found out that, that, that uh, David was somewhere in Engedi. And so they're, they're going to find David in Engedi. Saul with 3,000 men show up, but Saul doesn't show up to this cave thinking or knowing that David's in the cave. Saul shows up to the cave and the Bible tells us to do what? Go to the bathroom, right? To relieve himself, right? You can't make this stuff up. I love how honest the Bible is, right? So Saul, this 3,000 person army kind of waits for him outside the cave. Saul steps into the cave to, to take care of business, all right? And so David and his men are in the back of the cave, in the innermost parts of the cave, the dark, so Saul can't see them. And they're like, wait a minute. This is too good, right? This is either really bad or too good, you know? And, uh, and they have to be startled, 
right? They have to be startled because imagine they can hear 3,000 people showing up, descending. And they're like, listen, probably thinking we're toast, we're done. Uh, you know, we're in a cave. There's no rear exit here. What are we going to do? And then the only man that walks in is Saul. And he walks just to the front of the cave, just far enough in where they can see him, where he's lit by the outside light. Opportunity. The only thing standing in David's way of the throne, Saul. The only thing standing in the way of David ending this wilderness time, right? This time of running and fleeing for his life is vulnerably sitting right there. Opportunity. You see, the wilderness um, is a season where God teaches and God tests his people. The wilderness is where God is teaching David very specific things, things that will pertain to him becoming the king of Israel, things that will shape and mark his life for so much longer than this temporary season in the wilderness. Listen, these wilderness seasons in our lives do similar things. They train us to see situations, to see things and people differently because ultimately the wilderness reshapes and sharpens how we ultimately see and experience God. That's what's taking place here in Engedi. That's what's taking place at the mouth of this cave with this opportunity before King David. Oh, it's an opportunity, but an opportunity of a deeper kind. And so back into the scene, if you have your Bible, verse 4. So that's the scene, the men in the back of the cave with David, Saul out front. And the men of David, verse 4, said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Can you imagine? They're like, David! This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Go kill him, right? The problem is, though, the Lord didn't say that. The Lord didn't say that to David. You can scour the scriptures, and I challenge you to do so. Nowhere in all of the pages of the scripture is verse four in there. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. That's not the word of the Lord. That's the word of these men who want to see David take a shortcut to the throne. Now, hold on. Let, let, me, let me give a positive reading of this. I think these men, I think these 300 men are actually well-intentioned. I think they're actually going, no, listen, this is a divine opportunity, this is our moment. Saul is here by himself. This is something the Lord has provided. Take it, seize it. That's what's good. And here's where we have to pause. And it even sounds like something God might say, doesn't it? You see, David's counsel, I, I want to read a quote actually from one of the scholars here. It says, be careful with an argument that uses divine providence as an equivalent for divine mandate. This is divine providence. Go do it, thus says the Lord. 
Modern language, let me do something like this. God has opened a door. God's opened the door before us. We had better walk through it. As I have matured in my faith, I'm growing more convinced that God is not the only one who knows how to open doors. This is a divine appointment, but not for the reason you think. And so here, imagine David with these competing voices for his attention and his action. David, respond, act, take care of business. In our lives, we have a lot of competing voices for our attention and for our action, do we not? And let me, let me just warn you that not all counsel from godly people is God's counsel. And I say that as a pastor, I say that somebody who is pro-counseling, professional counseling, all of those things. But I must say this, we are fallible. Our counsel as well, meaning as it may be, may not be God's counsel, not what the Spirit is saying. Psalm 33, verse 11, there is one counsel that lasts forever and that is infallible. That is the word of the Lord. The counsel of the Lord lasts forever, Psalm 33 says. It's his counsel we want above all else. And so David is getting this this advice and and look at it in in verse four, the second half of verse four. It appears that David is taking their advice, their counsel. Then David arose, and this idea in the Hebrew is that David got up with a clear action and activity in his mind and in his heart. And I don't believe that David was intent on killing him. I think he knew the word of the Lord well enough to know that he can't lay his hand. He can't kill the anointed, right? He's not going to break the sixth commandment. He's not going to kill Saul. But he was going to do something else. And so here's, here's where it gets really interesting to me. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So he doesn't have the intent to kill him. I don't believe that's true. But even though his men want him to do that, he goes up and he slices off a robe. No big deal, right? Like, is that really a big deal that, that, that David just cut off Saul's, a piece of Saul's garment? It is a big deal. He's like, oh, how do you know it's a big deal? Look at verse five. It says that David's, look at this, and afterwards, after cutting that, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What was the reason for the Holy Spirit striking David's heart? Because he cut off Saul's robe. You're like, still, I'm still wrestling with why is it a big deal that David cut off Saul's robe? Well, here's why it's a big deal. A robe in the ancient world was how a king was recognized. So in essence, what David is doing to Saul is a, an act or kind of humiliation. He's taking his him. He's cutting off his garment. He's kind of taking his power and his authority away from him. Now, we've seen this in 1 Samuel in two other places. The first was, was where Saul and, and Samuel, and really their last major interaction, Saul has just sinned against the Lord, and Samuel uh, rejects Saul, turns his back, and you'll remember Saul reaches out, and he does what? He tears Samuel's garment, and it's just like this scene, and, and Samuel's like, just like you've torn my garment, the kingdom of Israel will be torn from you. The other place, though, was a more positive one where Jonathan, what does he do to David. He gives him his robe. He gives him his armor. He gives him everything, essentially going all the power, all the authority, David, that I have, I want you to have it, right? So he gives it to David. Or, or how about the scene with the hem of a garment in the New Testament, where the woman with the issue of blood for over a decade 
is just going by faith, going, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Why? Well, she had this belief that in the hem rested the power, rested her, her healing. Now, she was a little bit confused, and it wasn't in the hem of his garment that rested the power. It was in the one who wore the garment that rested the power, and that she was healed, not by the hem, but by Christ alone. And so she reaches out, and what happens? She says she touches her, and Jesus goes, hold on. Who, who touched me? And there's this power that went out from him, not from his garment, but it shows you this picture, this idea of how significant a robe would have been. Maybe a modern example would be, um, and this is even probably even much lower than what I'm talking about here, would be a, a military general on his uniform with stars and stripes and someone coming up and ripping off those stars and those stripes. This form of humiliation and disgrace. David's convicted over that. David's convicted that he just did that to Saul. You, Kyle, really? Saul's pursuing David to kill him. Saul has thrown a numerous number of spears at David. He literally tried to sabotage him with his own son and with his daughter who he's married to. This surely seems like a really small deal. And here's why I want to make this point. What seems small to everyone else is significant to David. This is a picture of a man and a leader that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. David is not perfect by any measure, but he is sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the course correction and the action that requires. And honestly, this for me in this, this, this verse 5 is pretty impressive. That in the heat of this moment, in this picture where David could have taken the throne and seized this moment, that in the heat of the moment, David is so still so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that he steps back, takes this garment. And can you imagine, like he brings it back to his military guys at the end of the cave, like the back of the cave. And they're like, you have a piece of cloth in your hands? Like you, like David, you should have his head in your hands, right? But you bring back a piece of cloth? And then it says about that piece of cloth, look at this, verse six. And he said to his men, holding the cloth, just picture this, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed, right? So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Because they're, they're probably like, listen, if you won't do it, we'll do it. And so he persuaded them. That word persuaded in the Hebrew means to tear apart. I don't think that's just by tearing off the garment. David is tearing apart his men. I don't know if because like maybe because of the counsel they gave him, he's like lighting into them being like, you almost made me really mess up with your counsel, guys. But he is like roasting into them and they back up. They're like, all right, all right, all right, all right. And then what should strike us is what David does next. So Saul rose up, still unaware all of this is going on, by the way. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. In verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Hold on. So David now puts himself and his men in one of the most vulnerable situations in the world. Instead of David lifting 
his sword or his knife to take Saul, David in turn bows himself before Saul and says, my Lord, my King. Get this picture. What's taking place? Is, is David approving of Saul and his actions? No, not at all. What David is doing is that he's bowing his heart and his head before the Lord, before God's word first and foremost. And I'll tell you this, that when we bow our hearts and our heads to the word of God, oftentimes the way in which he calls us will not make sense by earthly measures. It'll oftentimes be unpopular, the unpopular route or way. Preserving God's anointed and leaving justice in the hands of God. You see, David is not letting Saul's aggression toward him dictate his response, is he? He's not letting the fact of what Saul's been doing to him for year after year dictate his response. He's not, in fact, letting the voices of his friends dictate his response either, is he? Who is dictating David's response in this scene? The Lord alone. God's word, his spirit. And listen, if this is true in our line, lives, this means we will often forfeit what we perceive as opportunities for obedience to the spirit. The word of God is the only reliable guide to the will of God. It's the word of God that rules our passions and interprets our circumstances. That's what David is submitting to. That's why we even teach the Bible the way we do here at the Parks Church, because we want the rule of God, the word of God, to rule our passions and our circumstances, not our human intellect, not our preferences, not our thoughts and our opinions. We want the word of God to rule, and we see that in David. And then what begins is this beautiful dialogue from verse 8 all the way to 21 at the end. And it's the longest dialogue between uh, uh, David and Saul in all of 1 Samuel. So David showing himself to Saul, making himself completely vulnerable. There's no escape. There's no way out. And based upon Saul's reputation, his men in the back of the cave are probably cowering, right? They know how Saul has responded. But David opens his mouth with honor to the king in honor before the Lord. And in verse nine, it's really interesting that David now points to the voice of some other men. David points to the voice of men in Saul's life who keep saying to him, hey, David is after you. David is trying to harm you. David is trying to overtake your throne. And David goes, when have I ever done that? Don't listen to them. Stop listening to those voices, Saul, in your life who are saying that I'm trying to harm you. I've never done that. I've never come after you. I've never tried to kill you. I have proof right now with this cloth that I could have and I'm not, and I didn't. And so Saul in turn is listening to these lying voices. Eugene Peterson, who's been really helpful in the study of 1 Samuel says this, that David's actions and words are shaped by his conviction that God is present and active in everything. Do you believe that? that God is present and active in every single moment. So David is believing that whether he's running in the desert or he's in En Gedi, whether he's in a cave with Saul sitting in front of him or a spear being thrown at him, that God is in every detail. However, Peterson goes on to note, Saul, on the other hand, has little God awareness. And that's a prayer for me and for us as a church, that we don't have little God awareness that we understand and we see God in every 
moment, every single detail. Peterson goes on to say that, that what motivates Saul is political and military considerations from which God has been eliminated entirely. You see, if the wilderness does one thing, it teaches us to watch. To watch and see. To see that the Lord is good and that he is soaked into absolutely every detail of this wilderness life. David is clear in the reason through his dialogue for not taking Saul's life. David's respect for human authority is based on his respect for divine authority first and foremost. And what stood out to me so much in this text this week, the way that David talked, he was not pleading for his own life. If you look at it, read it this week again. David was not pleading for his own life. In many ways, David was pleading for Saul's life. Saul, repent. Saul, turn your heart to the Lord. Saul, you don't want the hand of God against you. You don't want the hand of the Lord against you. David goes, listen, it's not gonna be my hand against you. It's gonna be the hand of the Lord. He's gonna be the one who executes justice. He's gonna be the one who executes vengeance. And so it's really David going, Saul, turn. Fall upon the mercy and grace of our Lord. Isn't that the ultimate thing though? Isn't this the ultimate picture of loving your enemies? Isn't this ultimately what we should want as believers? Is not to be counted as right, not to get our way, not to get revenge or anything like that. Shouldn't what motivate us the most as believers be this, that a stone heart be saved, that someone be redeemed and taste and see that the Lord is good to see his mercy. And that's what I see in this text from David to Saul. Saul, listen, fall on the mercy of God. Fall on the mercy of God. And David is a picture of that. And then verses 16 through 21, we get Saul's speech. We get Saul's language. And this is, gotta be honest, it's a little confusing on the surface, right? As soon as David had finished speaking, these words to Saul. Here's what Saul says out of his mouth. Is this, is this your voice, my son David? Do you sense the intimacy there? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He struck, right? He struck probably by the mercy of David, how he was so vulnerable and David chose not to take his life. His words even say in verse 20, you'll now surely be king of Israel. Like he's now telling David, I know you're gonna be king over this nation. Like all of his words are right. Even his emotions are right. But is it real repentance? Is he really sorry? Or is this just sentimental spirituality? And I'd submit to you this question, what's the difference between the speeches, between David's and Saul's? The words match up. Maybe even possibly the emotions match up in it. The difference between the speeches is this. The character that backs up the speech. Saul has none. And David has it all. While Saul does display exquisite religious emotions and religious words, his life does not change in the slightest degree moving forward. And listen, this is how we biblically assess repentance. How do you know repentance is true? Is it because the language is right? Is it because the emotion is there? No, not necessarily. How you assess repentance is faithfulness over time, fruitful change over time, that the character matches the confession. 
And David understood this. And he saw it. Notice he wasn't moved by Saul's exquisite language or his deep emotion. If he would have been moved by those two things, he would have ran down to him and hugged him, kissed him. What does it say in verse 22 David does? Something pretty simple. Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. They went back into the cave. David's going, time will tell, Saul. Time will tell if these words are true. Reconciliation has not occurred. And as we close, David's words, his speech, his quote-unquote inactivity, which was very much activity, <laughs> turned out to be a much more powerful weapon than his sword ever could be. And this has always been true in all of church history for the message of Christ to go forth. Whether it's false teachers, whether it's physical persecution, historically what we see that draws people is this transformative resistance of love by God's people. You think about Rome and the way Christians were treated there and how they responded. Maybe you have this testimony in your own life, like the one I heard this week, where there was this man who adamantly opposed Christ, adamantly opposed Christians, persecuted, hate them, hated everything about God, hated Jesus, everything, would curse them. And then one day, he woke up and he goes, who are the people who are the kindest to me? And he was like, it's Christians. Who are the people who love me, who display this, this generosity towards me, who I adamantly oppose them in their God? Who's the one who displays that to me? It's Christians. And that was what opened the door for them to be able to share their faith and their testimony with him. And today he's walking with Jesus. This transformative resistance through love. Now let me ask you this question. What happens, what happens when you find yourself in a situation where things are not as you think they should be? I mean that maybe individually. Culturally, I think we could all say that, right? We find ourselves in a place as believers where we're not where we think we should be. How do you respond? What do you do? There's an interesting repeated word in chapter 24. And it's a word that's repeated nine times in the text. And it's the word hand. Hand or hands. One of my greatest fears and suspicions that in a room like this, when I raise that question, the real answer is this, that we take matters into our own hands. How can I fix this? How can I resolve this? How can I avenge this? How can I make this wrong right? And when we take matters into our own hands, something that David is not doing in this text, I think we believe two main lies. And the first lie is this, that you believe that vengeance belongs to you or that revenge belongs to you, that you're the one who has the power to settle the score and revenge is sought. Maybe for some of you, and if you're younger, this would be particularly true. 
Maybe you view opportunities like, I had got, I, I better seize this. I may never get another shot. I may not have another opportunity. Imagine if David were to say that. This may be the only moment I have with Saul in this vulnerable position. This may be the only moment I have with him before me. I better take it because I don't know if I'm going to get another shot. Here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bible open, flip one page over and then look at chapter 26. What does David get? Another opportunity where he's before Saul. Imagine if that would have been David's excuse to shortcut to the throne. And, and God's like, David, I'm in this detail. Maybe you, believing that vengeance belongs to you, you, you engage in manipulating circumstances to make something happen. Maybe for you, vengeance, you're like, Kyle, vengeance? Like, that's such a strong word. It's biblical, but okay. How about the word outcomes? You believe the power of the outcome belongs to you. Kyle, Kyle I, I don't seek revenge. I don't seek vengeance. I seek justice. Oh, that's it. That's what the Bible says. Seek justice, right? True. How does the Bible tell us to seek justice? The way in which God seeks justice. A good chapter for you to read would be Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, where, where Joshua is there at leading Israel. And uh, the angel shows up to Joshua. You know this scene. He shows up to Joshua. And Joshua's like, uh, who are you for? Us or our adversaries? You remember what the angel says back to Joshua? I love it. <laughs> One word. No. <laughs> he goes, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Right? So this idea in our lives and in our hearts often is, God, you're on my side, right? And I'm on your side, at least I hope, God, please take sides. David is about obeying God in this moment, understanding that God has one side and that side that he sides himself on is him. That's God's side. God's side is him. It's his glory. It's his execution. And David realizes that because he understands that even in this moment, God might be doing a saving work in Saul and David is not going to get in the way of that. That is trusting God fully with the outcomes. In doing that, especially in wilderness seasons that many of you are in, requires us to see God rightly. A God who holds both mercy and justice in his hands. A God who loves righteousness and steadfastness. I mean, this is what Psalm 33, the earlier part from verse 11 that I said. Look at this. It says that, give that to me. He, God, loves righteousness and justice. Do you know what righteousness was in this scene? Do you know what the righteous act for David was in this scene? Was not to kill Saul. That was the righteous deed in this scene. And God loves that. And justice. Let me tell you, justice will be executed to Saul. It will be coming. The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. That's the second lie. The first lie is we believe vengeance rests in our hands. We believe the outcomes rest in our hands and our power to settle the score. The second is this, that you don't fully trust. I don't fully trust in the steadfast love of God toward us. God, what do you mean by that? We say things or believe things like this. If God loved me, then this situation would be resolved. This wilderness season would be over. I would just be able to end it this way or that way. As one scholar says, the backbone of obedience, Christian obedience, is confidence in the steadfast love of God. Hear me, God loves you so much that he knows what is going to produce real change in your life and my life. 
And oftentimes, it looks like long-suffering. By faith, in loving kindness, through trials with hard things and hard people. Do you trust that kind of loving God? Do you believe his steadfast love literally covers the earth, Psalm 57 says. Now, here's what I want you to do, a little homework for this week. Read Psalm 57. Psalm 57 is a psalm written with David. You can read it. Is it when he's in the cave fleeing Saul. And I want you to pick up on what the major point of Psalm 57 is. There's two things. I'm going to tell you what they are, okay? Um, the first is the steadfast love of God. That's a major. He's in the cave being persecuted, the steadfast love of God. You want to know what the second point is? God's glory. God's love in God's glory. You see, one of the greatest threats to our souls is not a soul. It's not an external situation. The greatest threats to our soul is ourself and our impatience and our inability to really grasp God's love toward us in Jesus. You see, David turns down a shortcut to the throne. Why? Because he knew that ultimately God was a God of mercy and justice. He knew that God was a God who loved him and was with him every step of the way. You see, David's life does two main things for us as we see him in scripture. One of the things he does, and this is not primary, is that he shows us how to respond to God. Like in this scene, how to respond to God in moments like this. Sometimes David's life shows us how not to respond to God, okay? This is how we don't respond to God. But the primary with David is this, is that David's life points us ahead to the true David, Jesus Christ. The one who had an opportunity to take a shortcut to the throne. You remember Jesus' wilderness moment with Satan? What was one of the things that Satan tempted him with? Hey, take the throne now. Take it this way. Go this route. And what does Jesus say? Take this shortcut, Satan is saying. And Jesus does what? He rejects him. And he lives the next three years of his life on the way to the throne. But Jesus, instead of choosing that shortcut, would choose the path that cost him his life so that we could live. That's enough for today. Um, Kyle, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, how, how do I handle this? How do I know to be active or inactive? How do I know what inactivity or activity looks like? Kyle, I'm in this season of my life. I, I wish I had a formula for you. I wish I had a seven-step process. But I think the Bible does something way more powerful than that. Because each situation each wilderness journey, each path that we are on uniquely requires the Spirit's leading. The Bible does something way better than give us a seven-step formula. The Bible puts these teachings in the form of a story, a story that shows us the heart of God, the story that shows us how we respond to God in certain situations, in certain ways that look absolutely and utterly just silly on the surface like what David does. You see, for some of you, as we engage, as we, as we come into this moment of communion and reflection over God's word, 
The things that the Holy Spirit will teach you and show you and be saying to you in these moments might be so silly to you on the surface. So silly like, hey, I want you to lay that down and not pick it up. I want you to surrender this. I want you to let that fight go and trust the Lord. Trust his love for you in this moment, in this season. I don't have a formula for you. But if I did have a formula, it would come from the word of God. It would come from Romans 12. And this is not a formula just that Paul picked up over his experience. This is something that Paul picks up through the life of Christ in the Gospels. That hearing and knowing his Savior and what he looked like, most of you know Romans 12 because of the beginning of it, about being a living sacrifice. Well, at the end of Romans chapter 12, if you have the ESV, it says, this is the marks of a true Christian. What does it look like us for us to actually follow Jesus with our whole lives in all situations, in success or in suffering, in wilderness, right? Or in the ordinary and mundane? Here's what it looks like. And so I'm gonna have Denise put that on the screen. I'm not gonna read it. But in our reflection, in our getting of communion, I want you to read this because I think the Spirit is going to use this text through the lens of 1 Samuel 24 to give a lot of you the clarity you need. What do I do? How do I respond? Lord, what are you calling me to? And so let me pray for us hosts. You can get ready. Father, um, God, I ask that in these moments ahead, your spirit would speak through your word with a profound clarity. God, even between services, the conversations I've had with people in unique, varying situations, Lord, only your word and your spirit can provide the clarity that they need. And so, Lord, I pray as we sit before your word, as we've sat under it this morning, God, it would lead us and it would guide us where you see fit. Let us be a people who are not trying to manipulate and bring vengeance on our own terms or revenge, but let us be a people full of your steadfast love, displaying your grace that changes lives, displaying your mercy that covers us. So Lord, do in these moments what only you can do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.